Good morning. So we are in the 14th week of a 15-week series, Questions Jesus Asked. And uh, today, we're going to be looking at a passage from John chapter 20, where Jesus asks a grieving woman, why are you crying? Why are you crying? What a question. Right now, even as I'm speaking, there are countless thousands, millions maybe, of people who are crying. There are people crying in Houston and in Florida and in uh, the Dominican Republic and Dominica and in Mexico and uh, so many places because of stuff that happened just in the last couple of weeks. We have people crying in Nepal and in Syria and Iraq. We have people crying in El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala because of the drug wars there. We have people crying in Somalia and Yemen because of famine. We have people crying in cities and in rural areas throughout our country. People are crying in our own city and in our own community. They're crying over lost loved ones. They're crying over lost homes and over lost possessions that are precious to them. We have people crying over destruction caused by natural disasters and over the ravages caused by sickness and disease and addiction. People crying because of uh, infidelity and betrayal and abuse. Multitudes crying because they or their loved ones have been victimized by violence and war and oppression, by exploitation, by racism, by prejudice, by injustice of every sort. People are crying, and more than a few of us here in this room, this sanctuary, have occasion, have had occasion to cry in recent days People are crying. And John chapter 20 records the story of a woman who was lost in her tears. So would you turn with me to John chapter 20? I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 18. And as we're going through this uh, sermon today, I'll be talking about three questions. Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And what are you hoping for? So John chapter 20, starting with verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the, from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord away. They've taken him out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as a cloth had been wrapped around Jesus' head. 
The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the land. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So here we have the story of Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala. She's crying. The text tells us she's crying, and she's not crying gently. These are not soft, quiet tears. She is weeping. She's wailing loudly, uncontrollably. She's utterly undone in her grief and loss and pain. That's part of what the Greek verb used here, kleo, suggests. This is a wailing. It's not just a few tears falling. She's crying because the Lord she loves is dead. Now, I want to, I mentioned I'm going to talk about three questions, but I want to talk about Mary first. There's an 8th century tradition, a tradition dating back to the 8th century that says that, that this Mary was the one that Luke talks about in chapter 7, the woman, the prostitute, who comes and bathes Jesus' feet in her tears. We don't know if that's really true or not. It's a tradition, as I said, from the 8th century. But there are a lot of things we do know about Mary from Scripture. Luke tells us in chapter 8 that Mary Magdalene, along with a number of other women, were followers of Jesus, and they supported Jesus in his ministry. Luke also tells us in that chapter that Mary was the one out of whom Jesus cast out seven demons. Seven demons. We don't know 
how that demon possession worked out in Mary's life. We don't have any record of what that meant for her, but you can know for sure that it was not good, not good in any way. In fact, it was terrible, horrible, bad. Mark 5 and Mark 9 give us a couple examples of people demon-possessed. And what we can see from those examples is that people who are demon-possessed, they just, they lose control of themselves and, and their, their own will. They, get, they throw themselves into fires. They break themselves against stones. They have supernatural strength that they use against themselves and against other people. They are lost and lonely and out of their, their right minds. In Mark 5, a demon-possessed man runs around, actually lives in the graveyards. And they shackle him and he keeps breaking the shackles. They shackle him because they're afraid of him. But he keeps breaking free and, uh, and just terrorizing everyone and everything around him. So we don't know what it meant for Mary, but we know a couple things. We know the people who were demon-possessed were driven out of the places where they were. We know that they often got locked up or chained up. We know that they were um, isolated from their families, from their communities. Many of them, many people believe they were isolated, separated from God, and they probably believed that about themselves. So we know that whatever it was that that uh, worked itself out in Mary's life, we know that it was terrifying and terrible. So we don't know what Mary's past had been. But we know that Jesus delivered her from it. He separated her. He set her free from those dark forces. And she found life again, a life centered in Jesus. Scripture tells us that Mary Magdalene became a devoted follower of Jesus. And when Jesus was arrested, when he was being mocked, when he was brought to the cross and crucified, Mary was there for all of of it. She followed him to the very end. One of the other disciples, like Peter, got scared and fled. Mary stayed. She stayed. She followed Jesus to the foot of the cross, and she stayed there to the very end. And now here she is. Here's Mary, early on the first day of the week, the first Easter Sunday, while still dark, sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. And here she is going to Jesus' tomb. She's going to the tomb to somehow feel close to Jesus, I think. To continue grieving, yes. Maybe to further prepare his body for burial because he'd been taken down off the cross and buried hurriedly. But when she gets to the tomb, she sees that something is not right. The stone that's supposed to guard the tomb, supposed to seal the tomb, has been moved. The entrance, it's it's open, it's unprotected. And she looks in. And when she looks in, she sees that the body of her Lord is gone. The 
The body of her Lord is gone, and she sees that, and whatever feeble control she may have had over her emotions at that point, all of that's gone too. She, she loses it. She loses control of her emotions, and she weeps all the harder, and then she starts running. She's looking for Simon, Peter, and John. Somebody has to know. Somebody has to help. So she runs to Simon Peter and to the other disciple. John's gospel refers to this disciple as the one whom Jesus loved, and we're pretty sure that when John is writing his gospel, that's how he sort of refers to himself. So this is Simon Peter and John. She runs to them and says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. It's a cry for help. Help me find him. Peter and John start running to the tomb. They get there. They look in. They confirm that Jesus' body is not there. Both Peter and John notice that the strips of linen are still there, and they're undisturbed. They're still wrapped. They're still wrapped, but not wrapped around anything. And we're told that when John saw this, that he believed. He may not have believed the scriptures, but when he saw this, he believed. Peter saw too, but we don't know what he thought, what he was thinking. It's a funny kind of uh, Greek verb used here. It's the idea of pondering, seeing and actually pondering. And maybe Peter is still pondering. Now, here's something strange, though. Peter and John see the empty tomb. The text says that John saw and believed, but then both of them just go back to where they're staying. They go back to where they're staying, and and later in chapter 20, we find out that they went, wherever they went, they went behind closed doors, locked the doors, and stayed there for fear of the Jews. They're afraid of being arrested, maybe crucified like Jesus was. So they see this empty tomb And all they can think of doing is going back and hiding. Peter and John go back to their homes. But Mary stays. Just like she's always done since she first encountered Jesus, she stays. She stays outside this tomb weeping. There's a sense here, I think, that for Mary... Home is wherever Jesus is. And she wanted to be where Jesus was, so she's staying at that tomb because that's the last place Jesus was. She just doesn't know where he is now. So she's staying and she's weeping and she's looking and hoping to find him. She's outside this tomb weeping and she bends down to look into the tomb again and this time the tomb's not empty. She sees two angels in white, one at the head, one at the foot of where Jesus had been, where the body of Jesus had been. And these angels speak to her and they say, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she says. I don't know where they have put him. Now, I want you to notice two things. The first thing is, 
She sees these two angels in white, and it doesn't seem to phase her at all. She has, she, she, they, it doesn't seem to affect her. In Luke chapter 2, a bunch of shepherds, tough guys, rough guys, see one angel, and the text says that they were terrified. Everywhere else in Scripture, when somebody sees an angel, they start to lose control of themselves, so to speak. And the angels say, hey, don't be afraid. Angels are not to be taken lightly. When people see angels, they don't just have a conversation. They fall on their face trembling, and yet Mary does not do this. She's so caught up in her grief and sorrow and loss that even angels can't shake her out of it. They've taken the body of my Lord away and I don't know where they have put him. And that's the second thing. Notice how she talks about Jesus. She doesn't say they've taken the body away. They've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they've put him. So, what she's really saying is Jesus isn't a dead body to her, even though he's dead. Even though she knows he's dead, even though she saw him crucified, He's still somehow real to her. He's her Lord. He's the one who saved her. Jesus is the one who met her in her pain and brokenness and changed her life. He's the one who, when the demon stole her life from her, he restored her. He gave her her life back. He's the one who freed her. But now Jesus is gone. And you can imagine the thoughts going through her head. What's going to happen now? What's going to happen to me? Are the demons going to come back now? Are they going to terrorize my nights like they did for so long? What am I going to do? What am I going to be? What, is, what, what kind of future can I have without Jesus? Who's going to love me like Jesus loved me? So then the angels ask her a question. Why are you crying? She's got to be thinking in her head. Why am I crying? That's the most stupid, ridiculous question anyone could ask anyone anytime. I'm crying because my Lord is gone and I don't know where he is. I can't find him. So what about you? Why, why are you crying? We all have stuff. All of us, sorrow, brokenness, pain, loss, failure. We have shame and guilt and grief and tears. Maybe not right this moment, but we have it in our lives. Why are you crying? Some of us grew up in situations where we're ashamed to let people see our tears. We stuffed our tears. Maybe stuffed them till this day. 
I want you to know that Jesus comes to us in our brokenness and pain. He's not put off by it. He doesn't judge us for it. Jesus knows our past. Every one of us, Jesus knows our past. And he doesn't hold any of it against us. Mary had seven demons. And all Jesus felt for her was love and compassion. Love and compassion is what Jesus feels for us. And especially in our pain and in our tears. Jesus asked the question, who are you looking for? Jesus comes to us in our pain, but often our pain blinds us from seeing and recognizing Jesus. Pain and sorrow often distort our perspective, and they rob us of hope. They capture our focus and attention and prevent us from seeing Jesus. Jesus, Mary saw Jesus, but she didn't recognize him right away. They make us forget maybe, or not believe Jesus' promise that he will always be with us. So I want you to know that Jesus is greater than our pain, he's greater than our blindness, he gives us eyes to see. He comes to us and he calls us by name. And he gently pulls away the blinders so that we could see him. Jesus asked Mary the question, why are you crying? And some people think that when Jesus asked that question, it's really kind of a rebuke Mary, why are you crying? I told you, I told all of you that I was going to die, I was going to be crucified, I was going to rise again. I told you I was going to rise again. Why are you crying? What's wrong? Why can't you believe? I just don't think that's what Jesus is doing. I don't think Jesus is rebuking Mary at all. I think that, well, John chapter 11 records the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And in John 11, Jesus hears that Lazarus is dying and he comes several days later. Lazarus has died and he stands in front of the tomb And even though he knows what he's about to do, he's about to call Lazarus out of the grave, Jesus weeps. He weeps. He weeps over the sorrow and pain and grief and loss that Lazarus' sisters are are feeling, Mary and Martha. He weeps because there's something, he knows that there's something about death that's wrong. It's just wrong. It's wrong. He weeps because of the pain and sorrow and loss and brokenness of the world. He weeps, even though he knows he's about to call Lazarus out of the grave. Mm -hmm. 
I don't believe that Jesus rebukes anyone because of their pain and sorrow and tears. That's just not what Jesus does. I don't believe that Jesus rebukes people for weeping because they lost someone they love. Isaiah refers to Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53. It's a messianic prophecy that we, that we believe speaks of Jesus. But he refers to the Messiah in that passage as a man of sorrows and familiar with grief, familiar with pain, familiar with loss. He's familiar with it because he endured pain and grief and loss himself because he carried his own grief and pain and loss. He's familiar with it because he carried the grief and pain and loss of the world, of each of us. Jesus does not rebuke people in their pain. I don't think Jesus is doing that with Mary in this instance. I think when Jesus asked the question, why are you crying, that what he's doing, what he's really doing is just drawing her out. When people are in pain, they need to talk about their pain. They need a safe person, a safe place to talk about their pain. So Jesus says, Mary, why are you crying? And she tells him, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've put him. I think he's also asking that question because he wants to prepare her for what's going to happen next. Who are you looking for? Who are you looking for, Mary? Mary, because of her pain, can't see Jesus. Can't recognize Jesus. She thinks, I think, he's a gardener. And, you know, on some level, it's a case of mistaken identity but actually, she's more right than she knows. Because Jesus wasn't the gardener that, she, that Mary expected him to be, but he is the gardener that we all hope for. John, in his writing, makes a lot of allusions to Genesis. Lots of allusions to Genesis. You remember how Genesis opens up. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty. And the darkness covered the deep. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Jesus picks, uh, John picks up on that in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John continues and says that this word was the life of the world and that light and that life was the light of all humankind. That light overcame the darkness. It shone in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. Jesus, the light of the world. And John chapter 20 begins was it was the first day of the week. Easter Sunday, yes, but also the first day of 
the new creation. And it was dark. Dark not just because the sun was not shining, but dark because it was dark. It was a darkness of soul. The garden in Genesis is the place where the world first went wrong. The, dark, the garden was made. God, God creates this garden and he puts the first man and the first woman in it and they're to garden it, to steward it, to help it to flourish. Garden is a place where they disobey God and where darkness, brokenness enters the world. The world goes wrong. And yet, in this garden where the tomb is, what happens is that the first light of recreation, of new creation, comes into play. Because Jesus rises from the dead. And he rises from the dead before Mary. And he pulls her into new life. In that place, in that tomb, which is now empty, Jesus springs forth. The death can't hold him. He springs forth. And he meets Mary in her tears and he wipes them all away, just like John talks about in Revelation 21. He wipes away every tear from our eyes and there's no more darkness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more grief. Old things have passed away, new things have come. He gives Mary the gift of resurrection, life, the gift of new starts. And that's what Jesus, the risen Christ, does for each of us. In the midst of our tears, he wants to help us to begin again. He wants to experience new life and resurrection power. And the way he does it is the way he did it with Mary. He comes searching for us in our pain. He calls us by name. He invites us into a deeper intimacy. Now, we don't always recognize him at first. Sometimes he comes to us through caring friends. Sometimes he comes to us through his creation. Sometimes he comes to us through uh, a communion service bread and the wine, which we'll be experiencing together in a couple minutes. A number of years ago, well, years and years ago, I came home one day, and my wife Leslie was crying. Um, she was crying because she was pregnant, and it was a difficult, a problem pregnancy. We'd had a miscarriage in the past, so she knew what that was like. And uh, this pregnancy was not going well. And she was crying. I said, why are you crying? And she said, I got a call earlier today from Kathy Bowden. And Kathy told Leslie that I was kind of going through my, my kids' clothes. I have a bunch of girls' clothes, and I was trying to figure out what to do with them. And I had this really strong, distinct 
sense that, that I should give them to you, Leslie. I think God wants me to give these clothes to you. And she, Kathy brought the clothes over. And what we heard from that was that God was saying to Leslie and to me, listen, I know about this pregnancy. And I know about the miscarriage. And I know the tears you shed for that. And I know the tears you're shedding now. And I want you to know that I'm with you and you're going to have a girl. And we had a girl and we named her Christine. There have been a lot of times in our lives when God has shown up in our lives and met us in our tears. That's who Jesus is. He meets people in their brokenness and pain and he meets them in their tears. So what are you hoping for? Jesus is the new Adam, the new gardener who makes right what was made wrong at the fall of humankind. He comes and meets us in our pain. Resurrection life and power, they've erupted from the grave and resurrection life flows in us and resurrection hope sustains us. Hope is not a denial of reality. It's not wishful thinking, not this hope. Hope is the confidence Jesus is alive. He is with us, he's strong, and he is good. And one day, all of our tears of grief and sorrow will become tears of joy and relief. And until that day, Jesus will be with us through the tears. Mary came to the tomb while it was still dark. She came lost and lonely, weeping, wailing, hopeless, in deepest, darkest despair, terrified that her demons would come back. But when she left, she left walking in joy and hope and purpose. She was walking in the light of the knowledge that her Lord, the Lord who loved her, had risen from the grave and would be with her forever. And so it is for each of us who follow Jesus. We do not follow a dead Lord. We follow a Lord who is alive and is loved and is with us through it all. Thanks be to God, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.